in. Yes. <laughs> okay. I just hit the record button now. <laughs> so we start. Jihan, it's really lovely to have you here. On this episode of Nkata, I am here with Jihan El Tahiri. Um, I could easily go and, you know, read out everything, you know, but I would say I wouldn't do that because, Don't. you know, people <laughs> should just go out there and see it's all in there. It's all out there. Uh, but it suffices to say that you are an outstanding, prolific filmmaker. Wow. And you have been at it for a long, long time. Um, I couldn't find your date of birth, so I'm not going to say it. But I know that you were born in Lebanon. And at some point, you were working for um, the mainstream you know, news agencies like Washington Post. Do you want my date of birth? And all of that. Do I give myself so, away? <laughs> um, you know, I don't want to go in there, but it suffices to say that you've made really like, you know, mind-blowing, you know, very impactful films, documentary films. And I'll just leave it to you to talk about yourself. Oh gosh, you that's terrible. Beginning, beginning from wherever. <laughs> Where do I yeah. begin? I, I, I think you should begin from all the way. Like I just mentioned now, you were born in Lebanon. Yes. And then you started traveling. So, yeah. you know, and I... We've we've met in different cities. Yes. In fact, this might even be Berlin here. Might be the ninth or tenth city, city we've met since in, 2007. Yes. So we are wanderers, in that sense. And somebody I, called me a migrating bird, and I love that <laughs> that description. I used to call myself a nomad, but I think a migrating bird is nicer. Yeah. Where do I begin? Um, yes, I was born in Beirut. Um, and I get very annoyed when people call me Lebanese because I was just born there. Um, my father was a diplomat, and so uh, I was born in Lebanon, and uh, we went on to travel and travel and travel. My first spoken language was Finnish. Uh, of course, I'm Egyptian. Uh, then we moved on to Panama, and from Panama to England, and from England to... You know, we just moved on and on and on. And uh, I... Uh, Sorry, you said your first spoken language, language. was Finnish. <laughs> and, then, and then you just, you know, like, breeze through that. How? How? Lebanon, Finnish? Well, I mean, the, the next posting after Lebanon, mm -hmm. uh, my father was at the embassy in, uh, in Finland. And so I must have been two at the time. And so I had a Finnish nanny. And so she spoke to me in Finnish. And by the time we got to England, and I was like four or five, um, I think they suddenly realized that I only speak Finnish. So they had to bring back my nanny because <laughs> no one could communicate with me. But like within six months, you know how kids are. My uh, Finnish was replaced with English. Mm -hmm. and um, But unfortunately, I did not speak Arabic because uh, my parents, obviously, that was, you know, during the time right after the 67 war. And so it was a constant time of crisis. We hardly ever saw our parents. There were very clear rules and moments where we'd see our parents and that sort of thing. So they were present, but in a very strange way, they were more present in sound than they are visually. So mm -hmm. I always remember things about my parents orally, but I don't remember them that much when I was growing up visually. Yeah, would that be through phone calls or? No, or? Like, like on weekends, for example, my father would be in the study mm -hmm. and he would constantly be looking for radio channels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was that sound of uh, 
him searching for Arabic radios. Mm -hmm. Me and my sisters were always together, mm -hmm. but my parents filter in through sound, yeah, not image. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know why I'm, I just said that, but it's, uh, yeah, but, actually, yeah. I'll tell you why I said that, because I was just remembering that um, uh, for the Biennale in Dakar mm -hmm. um, uh, two years ago, mm -hmm. uh, I, the, the, the theme of the exhibition I participated in was called Family Nation Belonging. Mm -hmm. And when they asked me to participate, it really sort of shocked me a bit, because then I said, how am I going to... Like, yeah. what do I say about mm -hmm. this? Because they're the three sort of very delicate themes that you're yeah, constantly yeah. trying to grapple with, but yeah. you can't really put your finger on. Mm -hmm. And um, and while I was thinking of uh, how to do this, how to figure out how I turned to be a Pan-African and a Pan-Arabist, having never lived in these spaces and spent my entire growing up uh, years wondering mm -hmm. uh, and never in Africa or in the Middle East. So how did I turn out to be like this? And as I thought of it, I thought of sound. Um, there, there are three radios, two screens, um, a canvas of a map. And on the map, I sort of stretched a thread through all the countries that I have lived in for more than eight months. Mm -hmm at mm -hmm. a time. Mm -hmm. And while I was doing it was the first time I actually sat down to figure out where I actually lived for more than eight months. And it turned out that I've lived in 32 countries. Whoa. <laughs> whoa, 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 32 countries. But we're going to come to that. I don't want <laughs> us to go too fast, too fast. Yeah. Um, can you talk about what it was like growing up really, like anecdotes in the moments that you felt you know, you can go back now, you can easily tap into right now. Growing up, I remember my sisters more than than anything. We were like this kind of gang of three girls where uh, solidarity was the thing. And we were very, all three of us were very naughty, but all three of us very studious. So we got always got high grades, so we didn't get in trouble at home but we were extremely naughty. So, you know, it was always keeping that balance. I remember going to Speaker's Corner at Hyde Park since I was like seven and participating in all these demonstrations that I had no idea what they were about, but they were the the thing to do. Mm -hmm. And like, I mean, I was seven or eight. Mm -hmm. um, and I still have this T-shirt. Don't laugh at me. But, you know, when I was eight, I still have this T-shirt that says Gaddafi is our only hope. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. I, 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 I have these pictures of me standing next to a car with with its license plate saying the PLO mm -hmm. and like going with the, the victory sign. So I guess I was very politicized from very early on, but I don't know if I knew I was politicized. Mm -hmm. It was just the space I grew up in mm -hmm. that was very geared towards politics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I remember being extremely naughty, being one of the boys, always playing football, always scathing my knees, and uh, I have 13 stitches in my head. I oh, broke, no way. 
I broke each limb at least two, three times. So I was um, slightly hyperactive. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I guess now we are beginning to see how that is likely. So do, do you think that, you know, being like this sort of like formed you or shaped you into becoming or taking up the profession that you eventually took up later I, in your life? No? I, I always feel that my life is a series of coincidences and just opportunities that happen, just happen to be there. And because my nature is to jump into the deep end, I find, sort of find myself in the deep end and then I got to swim. So this, this whole idea of the, <laughs> your, your nature of jumping into deep end, is it like, Completely. A, is it like a, a nature thing? Is it like you, you think that I you just... I don't even think of it. You don't I think just, of it? Uh, it's like this massive challenge and I don't even think. And once I've jumped into it, I think, what on earth am I doing? And you think How you've I, always been like that? I think so. I Okay, let me just go back a bit and say one thing that was really important which i think was one of the turning points in the child in, in our childhood as growing up we were a secular egyptian family we've always known we we're egyptian although i didn't really speak arabic and i didn't really know what egypt was we'd never really gone to egypt or spent any time in egypt but the concept of being egyptian was very important And we went to the school in London. Of course, I mean, we spent like 10 years in London. So I, London was uh, the main moment of my growing up, the main space of my growing up. And um, I went to a church school, um, St. Mary Abbott's. I ended up being a choir girl. And we were in the choir, all three of us. And uh, the bishop decides that my promotion is going to go sing in the choir in some other country. Mm-hmm. And he needs a signature from my parents, obviously, to travel with um, a minor. And so he goes to see my dad to get a signature for us to travel with the choir. And my dad freaks out and says, like, but she's Muslim. <laughs> of course, no one had told us we were Muslim. Nobody, religion at the time, and I think it's a really important element because religion was not part of the narrative mm-hmm. in in the 60s and the early 70s mm-hmm. it just wasn't mm-hmm. socialism was solidarity mm-hmm. was all sorts of other isms were there yeah. but not but religion. religion nobody ever told us we we're muslim mm-hmm. and so of course my father comes back from work completely freaked out and calls the three of us and Then he realizes that we don't speak any Arabic. And so he brought in a sheikh to teach us Arabic and religion. And so I remember learning my first verse of the Quran in English because we didn't speak any Arabic. And I think that was a really important turning point in all our lives because suddenly this new item of difference came in. And for my father, I think it put him in front of the realization that what am I going to do now? We're not going to just, you know, the girls are old enough. I'm the youngest of my three sisters. And so it was at that point that he decided to go back to Egypt. 
And of course, Nasser had just died and things like that. So things had changed. So we go back to Egypt with this realization that you have to learn Arabic, you have to be a Muslim, you have to fit in. So there were all these important fundamental things that you had to become when no one had really ever told you about it mm -hmm. before. So my return to Egypt was very, was a huge culture shock mm -hmm. because suddenly I had to be something I had no idea how to become it. Mm -hmm. Was it something that you were open to accept? Was it something that you felt, okay, this is me becoming who I'm supposed to be? Or is it something that you had to... Um, I mean, as a child, you suddenly think that you've done something terribly wrong. Mm -hmm. And you arrive in a country where everyone is speaking a language that you sort of understand a bit of, but you can't really communicate. And so the 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 desire to fit in, the, the desire to adjust is supreme. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately for me, the, the other, the next sheikh they brought in to teach us Arabic was vicious. I mean, he was beating us up the whole time. Whoa. So I had a very, very strong um, distaste mm -hmm. for the language. And for I, it was something I had to do, but I didn't, I, I just did not like it and I did not want it. So I think it isn't until much later that I had to sort of, and, and it comes at a very specific moment where mm -hmm. you start asking yourself questions. So at that point, it was just about that's how it has to be. Mm -hmm. Adapting, adjusting, and being a child of diplomats, mm -hmm. we traveled all the time. So adjusting was the key word. Mm -hmm. Adjusting and adapting. Adjusting, and adapting. So throw me anywhere. Give me 10 minutes. I'll adjust. I'll adapt. I'll do whatever needs to be done. And you sort of grow up thinking all these imaginary concepts of being a citizen of the world and cosmopolitan. And then there's a moment that comes, and for me it was a very clear moment in 1990 with the Gulf War, where you suddenly say, no, hold on a minute, who am I? Mm -hmm. So when you came back to Egypt, because I know that eventually you started also um, thinking or that you were very conscious of the position of Egypt, you know, even geographically, as um, a place that is part of the African continent, but at the same time, um, part of the Arab world. And then you, you had to sort of like position yourself in that. At what point did that sort of like begin? Did it play a role in how you were experiencing Egypt when you came back as a child? No. Was it something that you no, no, experienced no. in any way? I think, I think, all this seeps into your consciousness and the only moment I slowed down to think or even pose these questions uh, was 1990. So um, in, in, in the mid-80s, I was going with the flow. Okay, let, let me try and disentangle this a, a little bit. I went to the American University in Cairo mm -hmm. Very much because of this distaste for Arabic. Arabic was so difficult and learning it and dealing with it was such a burden for me mm -hmm. that my decision was the minute I can escape from Arabic, I'm out. 
And so my way out was going to the American university because I didn't have to do anything in Arabic. Both my sisters had to go to the Egyptian university and their Arabic was as bad as mine. So mm-hmm. I could see how painful that was. And I was always the rebel of the family. And I knew that my father did not want us to go to the American university. He was categorically against. You try to discuss it, you try to negotiate it, that's that. And of course, at the time, because it was the only university you had to pay for, we couldn't really argue with him. But being a rebel, I decided I'm going to the American university. And he said, no. So I said, well, I'm going to go anyway. He said, well, I'm not going to pay. So I said, fine. Mm -hmm. So I did not go to university the first six months. Mm And I worked as rebellion against my father. I mean, I had all these little jobs Mm -hmm. to save money to go to university despite my father. Mm -hmm. And just as I had collected all the money, my father left me this envelope Mm -hmm. saying on it, tuition. (laughs) And, and And that envelope was went up and down the staircase for like it's like I don't want your money I need your acceptance like yeah. written on that because we weren't speaking to each other for, mm-hmm. <laughs> for months mm-hmm. and then at the end he wrote on it yes okay <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean this is a good entrance into I guess the role of my father because mm-hmm. I speak of my father quite a bit mm-hmm. um, my father sort of left the role of disciplining to my mother. Yeah, yeah. So we sort of always got angry with my mother, but my father was this person who was never present and who, when he, he, he spoke very little, and every time he spoke, it was something either you had to think of for 10 years or it was categoric, mm-hmm. like there's no way around mm-hmm. it. And I think the first ever conversation I -hmm. had with my father, I must have been 19 when I'd already started working. Mm -hmm. My father was someone who was very clear about what he wanted and what he didn't want, what he thought was right and what he thought was wrong. But he never, ever stopped you from doing what you wanted to do if you went ahead and did it. Mm -hmm. So in many ways, my rebellion against my father was always a massive rebellion against him, but he never stopped me from rebelling. Mm -hmm. And once I got through with what I had decided I wanted to do, he would then support me, Mm -hmm. which which was very strange because I knew he didn't want me to do that, Mm -hmm. yet he would support me doing it. Mm -hmm. And that went on until forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was the backbone of my support system, Mm -hmm. just to give you an idea. So what part of it came off to you as rebellion, since he always supports you anyway? You don't actually realize that he supports you anyway till much later. Mm -hmm. So I think I only when he died four or five years ago, I realized to what extent the the carpet had been pulled from under my feet Mm -hmm. because he was that person I always contradicted and had to prove my point because if I, if I didn't have a real point, I wouldn't win the argument. Mm-hmm. So I guess you only 
understand that he supports you in hindsight, Mm -hmm. not while it's happening. Mm -hmm. So let me give you an example. When I got this job to be the the, the North Africa correspondent for the Washington Post, Mm -hmm. and I was going to leave Egypt. Mm -hmm. And my father had been against leaving Egypt. No girl would go live alone in a country. He was, he was, this combination of traditional and open at the same time, yeah. there were certain restrictions that mm-hmm. the, like I had a curfew until I was 23, mm-hmm. it's like strange things like that. Yeah. So it was, it was very contradictory. And so I go and I tell him I'm leaving and I'm leaving to Tunis and that's that. Mm-hmm. And so he calls me the following day or the following week and he gives me an American express card. And I'm furious. I said, I'm leaving because I don't, I want to prove me. Mm-hmm. I don't want your money. I don't want your name. I don't want to be living under the shadow of somebody else. And he looks at me very calmly. He was a very calm man. And he says, but that's why I'm giving you this credit card. I'm like, what do you mean? I don't want your money. And he says, but I'm giving you the credit card. So... Anyone, no matter how high up that person is, with that credit card, you can tell them no as much as you have told me no. It's up to you to say no, Mm -hmm. but know that you can say no to anyone. Mm -hmm. All you need to do is pull out a card and go back home. Mm -hmm. And I think that level of security is more psychological than it is financial or anything. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, I then proceed Mm -hmm. that my biggest challenge is to never use that card. (laughs) (laughs) Because for me, using that card Mm -hmm. would be an admit, you know, I would admit failure. Yeah. But but again, you also know that it's always there. It's there. I mean, exactly. You know that it's it's almost like it cushions you. But again, it's sort of like, it's, it's like a reminder to be responsible. Absolutely. Because you don't want to. I don't come want to use to the that. card. <laughs> and so, but the thing is, and I think that's very fundamental because it taught me to think where is it that I really want to say no and what are the consequences? Mm-hmm. And I will live up to these consequences no matter what. Mm-hmm. That is what I feel. That is what I'll do. Mm-hmm. I will go ahead with it, even if that no is going to kill me. So do you think it was like this also with maybe your sisters? Yes. My sisters were very different because, um, but obviously it's like this. I mean, like my eldest sister is one of the biggest economists in Egypt. She, She was the first female president of a stock market anywhere. <laughs> Um, she has companies, she goes to Davos each year. She like, she is one of Egypt's economic magnets. Mm -hmm. And my other sister, uh, she used to be the um, vice president of American Express Europe and left Europe to come back to Egypt. And now she's the deputy governor of the central bank. Mm -hmm. So they're both these very established economists. And of course, I'm the black sheep who's always half the time penniless and half the time getting into trouble. Mm -hmm. But I do think that the security of my family, although I've always rebelled against it, but it's my center. Mm -hmm. You've talked about your dad. 
a lot. Let's talk about your mom. Yeah. My mom. My mom was, uh, it was always a very complicated relationship because she completely consecrated her life for us. So she was the mother, she was at home, and in a way she she was Madame l'ambassadrice. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And so she, we always had to dress properly, eat properly, look properly, everything properly. And of course that was so not me. I don't know if she ever accepted me the way I am. Mm -hmm. And that was the heart of the problem. And the fact that she wanted me to adapt, to look like all these beautiful bourgeois jewelry mm -hmm. wearing yeah. uh, girls, girls yeah. was just an, an anathema to me. You know, mm -hmm. I... I was a tomboy. <laughs> My curly hair was always all over the place. I mean, I was just a bit wild. Mm -hmm. And she always, always tried to tame me. Yeah. And did that um, result to some sort of a conflict? Conflict that stayed as, a, as an experiencing of each other? You're going too deep there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one of these... Um, I guess, existential things because um, in a very strange way, I always needed the acceptance of my mother mm -hmm. more so than my father because deep down, I guess, I knew that my father respected me because of the constant conflict and because of the content. My, my conflict with my father was always about real things, big things, mm -hmm. I always wanted my mother to accept me for the content of who I was and not for the shell of what I looked like. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I ever got to that. The shell was really important to her and that was something I wouldn't compromise on. Mm -hmm. And um, my mother died exactly two years after my father. Mm -hmm. And it was almost on her deathbed that I realized that I don't really know this woman. And it's something that really shocked me because I spent my whole life battling against or for. There was this mission of being accepted that I think I never really took the time to just sit down and find that moment of peace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a sore issue and I guess having daughters is is even more complicated because now I remember very clearly that a lot of the things I did with my daughters was not to become like my mother it's like you know when you'd break a glass and my mother would shout it was like my daughter would break a glass and I would start I was like I'm about to shout and say no 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 it's just a glass don't shout I think it's important to get to moments in life where you think the unthinkable, you mm -hmm. question yourself because you get to moments where you really have to figure out what is this all about? Mm -hmm. What's real and what's fake? Mm -hmm. What is social constraints? What's image? Mm -hmm. What's representation? Mm -hmm. Do other people create your narrative or are you going to start working on your own narrative oh, yeah, at yeah. some point? Mm -hmm. 
And it's such a difficult process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In a funny way, my relationship with my father, although there are many regrets, many regrets, like I really regret that I didn't take the time to sit and interview him, except at the very, very end when he was much weaker mm -hmm. and less present. My father was a very powerful man mm -hmm. who was involved in all the issues that I'm now covering, that I'm trying to make films about. Mm -hmm. But because I was so busy trying to prove that I exist outside of you people, mm -hmm. it's positioning oneself mm -hmm. as opposed to the other, where I exist mm -hmm. in confrontation or in relation to you. And... Um, And I think it was with my last film that I eventually, here I was interviewing all these people and they'd look at me and it's like, why don't you interview your dad? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And eventually I thought, and, yeah. why don't I interview my dad? <laughs> <laughs> But do you, do you now see that as a regret? Like the way you're saying it? I mean... You're saying that you should have, but should is that have. really like, would you use the word regret? I, I'm not good at regret. I don't like regret. I should have because it would have been easier. But I think one can piece together things that one hasn't done if it's necessary. Mm -hmm. And I did do one big interview with him before he died. But there's so many other things I... You didn't, you didn't get to do with him? or No, I didn't capture on camera. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's not a regret. Because mm -hmm. I know I have them, it's capturing them. And again, it's this relationship to preservation, this relationship to the modern world capturing of everything. But I'm a person who works with archive. So it, so it, it's, it's all these different things that come into play at the same time. But regret is not something I accept. But, but One thing I have acted upon, for example, because of that, is is the fact that I'm starting to do a lot of oral histories. Mm -hmm. So people whom I think are important, people who have not been documented, who I think in the sphere of these things I want to talk about, about Pan-Africanism, about independences, about these moments, founding fathers, what happened? So, for example, someone like Lakhdar Ibrahimi, I'm doing oral history sessions with him. So I go whenever I'm in Paris, I go and I sit with him for five, six, seven hours. Mm -hmm. And every time he says, what are you going to do with that? And I'm like, I don't know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I just think it needs It's to be document the, yeah. documented. Yeah. And I think that does come from the fact that I did not document my father. Mm -hmm. So this whole process of oral history, I do think is very important on a personal level. Mm -hmm. But obviously, it's also connected to my father. Yeah. Gosh, we got into this, yeah. uh, <laughs> this, this, is... uh, this personal stuff too deep. <laughs> Let's go back to the 80s okay, now. Okay, <laughs> so, uh, yes, so back to the 80s. Again, from early 80s, 84 to 90, you were yeah. going everywhere covering the Middle East. Yeah. So can you talk about that? And then straight to that point, that turnaround. But before that turnaround, 1992, which I find very interesting. 1992, you filmed um, Osama Bin Laden's uh, oh, camp God. <laughs> in, uh, okay. in Sudan. So... 
Okay, yeah, so let's like talk that. about all of that. Uh, yeah. So phase two of rebellion, I got the scholarship to go to Oxford University. Mm-hmm. And again, my dad said no. So I said, okay, I'm going to get a job and I'm going to get the money to go to Oxford. And uh, I was fascinated with photography. And the first job I found was a photographer for Reuters. So my very first ever job was as a photographer for for Reuters and it was in 1984 and it was during the war in Lebanon and uh, the Reuters office in Lebanon at the time was mainly for girls. We used to call them the Reuters girls and they used to come to Cairo every three months for R&R, rest and recreation, Mm -hmm. and three people from the Cairo office would go replace them for three months. Mm -hmm. So it was three months and three months. And then somehow after a while, I became one of these rotations of going to Lebanon. So I ended up covering the war in Lebanon for many years. The PLO had left by then, and um, but obviously the big story was connected not just to the war, but what happens to the Palestinians. Um, One parenthesis before getting there, I studied South African politics at university, and I was adamant about going to South Africa and joining the anti-apartheid movement. The first time I ever got arrested was throwing things at the South African embassy in London. So, I mean, South Africa was a very important, formative university thing because at the American University in Cairo, uh, most of my friends and most of the people I hung out with were Africans from, I mean, I had uh, um, Africans meaning uh, Southern Africans. Mm -hmm. Many years later, I come across the guy who's the Minister of Information in Rwanda, Mm -hmm. who was with me in class. And I look at him, he's like, hold on a minute, weren't you Ugandan? He says, yeah, that was then. (laughs) (laughs) So I had all these Ugandan, Rwandan, South African, Sudanese, Ethiopian. It was bubbling with all these rebellion movements who the people from these movements would come to Egypt because at the time, the ANC, the PAC, all the Azania, all of them had offices in Egypt. So all these students and all these bursaries that Nasser had set up mm-hmm. were the people I hung out with at school. Mm-hmm. So you had these people with the combination of all the Palestinians. So it was this really vibrant, revolutionary moment during the university mm-hmm. years. So did, I, did, did, that, did that contribute to forming, sort of like forming your completely. consciousness about being an African who is also... Completely. I mean, I mean, at the time, and I think that the accentuation of the differences between the north and the south of the continent happened later because early 80s, we spoke of Africa as a single space. Don't forget that in Algeria, the Egyptians were paying for liberation movements to be trained in Algeria at the time. So this difference between uh, being North African and and Southern African wasn't even part of our consciousness. Mm -hmm. So the question 
of Africanness never really arose that much. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was a question of color, mm-hmm. but it wasn't that important because you have to remember in that space, the anti-apartheid movement, which was the heart of what was happening in the 80s, at the ANC, you had a lot of white people that were an essential part of, of, the, anti- of the ANC mm-hmm. and the anti-apartheid mm-hmm. movement. So I don't recall ever questioning it. Mm-hmm. It was never really posed. I just was African Mm -hmm. since that's where my country was. Mm -hmm. And I was Arab because Mm -hmm. I was Arab. Mm -hmm. So I never really got to these questions. Mm -hmm. So in 84, from 84 to 1990, it's all very exciting. You're a photographer. You're in a war zone. You're young. It's adrenaline. You're meeting all these amazing people. And it's all very exciting. And instead of studying people like Yasser Arafat, you meet him and you interview him and you sit with him and he invites you to sit and have dinner. So it was this moment of everything was possible. Mm -hmm. You could change the world. I completely and fully believe. Just give me five minutes. I'm going to change the world. Wow. And (laughs) and that was because you were really like in the middle of it. So you, 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 you see history unfolding actually making itself but also unfolding before I you I don't know if one is conscious mm-hmm. of being in the middle of a history unfolding but there was definitely an awareness that if I throw in my five cents mm-hmm. I can make a difference mm-hmm. which is something that we feel much less today yeah. although you work much harder but I felt that if I go to these zones and if I really understand these 16 different militias in Lebanon, maybe with my pictures and with my writing, I can help stop this. Mm-hmm. If you engage, I remember I was um, going through one of the camps in Lebanon and I constantly had this pin that says free Nelson Mandela mm-hmm. because like Freeing mm-hmm. free Nelson Mandela was a human endeavor. It wasn't about country. It wasn't about zone. It was about humanity. Mm-hmm. He was the representative mm-hmm. of freedom for humanity. So I was walking around the war in Lebanon mm-hmm. with a badge saying free Nelson Mandela. And I remember one of the women in the camp saying, free us first. Why are you talking about <laughs> Nelson Mandela? You're standing here. Free us. Free us from what's happening. And I was like, but Nelson Mandela is a... And she just like completely dissed me. Like you're standing here and you're talking to me about Nelson Mandela. And I remember trying to explain to her why freeing Nelson Mandela was so important to also free them. Mm-hmm. And I think this is stuff I really believed. Mm-hmm. Now, what changed? 1990, what changed? I'll tell you an anecdote of the exact moment, Mm -hmm. actually, because I think, I don't know if you want to call it unconscious, if you want to call it idealism or whatever it is, I have no idea. I just tend to sort of go through life on the fast lane. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I think or think deeply. I just do things. I just move on. And so I was on this fast track, just going from thing to Thing, moving on, doing it. And then I uh, I was expelled from Tunisia. 
for professional reasons, it's too long to explain. And mm-hmm. yeah. in the aftermath, it turns out to be very connected to the Gulf War, which, of course, at the time I didn't realize. So I'm expelled from Tunisia in December of 1989. And, of course, I don't want to go back home to daddy as a failure, mm-hmm. saying I've been expelled. So I, the first plane leaving Tunisia was to Paris. So I got on that plane, and at the time, visas were not such an issue. So I arrived without a visa, and I called a French friend of mine who took about, I don't know, half a day to get me a visa and take me into Paris, put me up in a in her flat. And that was December of 89. I had covered absolutely every single moment that led up to the Gulf War. But mm-hmm. I covered each one of these moments as news stories. And because you're so much in the fast lane, you don't actually connect the pieces of the Mm -hmm. puzzle Mm -hmm. that actually eventually Mm -hmm. become what history is about. Mm -hmm. And so I was expelled. I end up in in, in Paris. And I remember on the 2nd of October, uh, on the 2nd of August, as a journalist, I used to sleep with the radio under my uh, pillow. Mm -hmm. And you see, it becomes an automatism at at the at the start of every hour. Mm-hmm. You press the button and the news filters in. I mean, mm-hmm. you're fast asleep, mm-hmm. but you know these are professional deformations. Mm-hmm. And you hear that jingle of the BBC mm-hmm. say, you know, Lily Bellera. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember clearly. It's like four in the morning. I'm fast asleep. I switch on the radio, and it says, Iraqi troops have invaded Kuwait. You know, you you open one eye, this word invaded Mm -hmm. was so old school. Mm -hmm. No one had ever invaded. I mean, like, and you think invaded, like what? And I went back to sleep because it was so weird. Mm -hmm. And the following hour, the news, Iraqi soldiers invaded Kuwait. So an Arab country invaded another country. And I mm-hmm. remember jumping out of bed and thinking, what do I do now? I'm in Paris. It's five o'clock in the morning. I have to be there. I have to. So we go to with, with a photographer friend of mine, mm-hmm. Tom Hartwell. Yeah. At this point, are you, were you working with um, any news agency? At this point, I'm working with U.S. News and World Report. Mm-hmm. No, I'm still, I'm still with the Washington Post, mm-hmm. but I'd been expelled from Tunisia. So my status with the Post was unclear because I was no longer where I was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So I was in this moment of flux, but I was like a stringer mm-hmm. for both the Post and for U.S. News and World Report. So this this other photographer who was in Paris, Tom Hartwell, we go together to the Iraqi, uh, to the Kuwaiti embassy and the embassy says, like, uh, what visa? There's no country anymore. <laughs> so anyway, cut a long story short. Within a week, I'm called by my newspapers to uh, to cover the war. And from there, I go to Jordan and from Jordan to Iraq, from Iraq to Syria. So Desert Shield goes by going from space to space, covering all these moments and, like, it really is a whirlwind and there's the negotiations of all the different 
the Americans trying to get these coalitions of all these different Arab countries. So you're in this whirlwind of trying to figure out what is going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I get a call from my paper, it's like a month or two before the, um, uh, the war, because we knew when the war was going to happen because there was a deadline by, uh, by the UN. They say, you're not going to cover the war. So I'm hallelujah. I go back to Paris. I'm not covering the war. And then they call me literally two days before the beginning of the war saying, go to the airport. Your ticket is at the counter. Mm-hmm. You're on your way to Iraq. That's the night before the war. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> I thought I wasn't. It was my birthday on top of it. And um, I, I remember taking the last airplane into the Middle East. We were 10 people on that flight. All 10 of us were journalists. And we do a stop in Vienna. Mm-hmm. And I think I even have a picture of that. Mm-hmm. Every single airline of every single Middle Eastern country was lined up. So you had Jordanian Airways, 70 planes, uh, like Egypt Air, 120 planes. They were all lined up. It was the scariest image. It really felt you're going into doom. Mm-hmm. And this was the last... They were, all, they were all flying to... No, they were all part, parked. So they can't go anymore. So that's it. We, the 10 of us, the 10 last journalists to take a flight that is flying into the Middle East. And that was it. And if you remember at the time, uh, there was a threat of chemical weapons. And so when they call me to tell me you're flying in, they have already organized the gas mask, chemical suits, and all Whoa. these things. So I'm flying into this zone where somebody is going to have to, I have to find that somebody who's going to give me the gas mask, the chemical suit, and there's the, and there's a, a taxi waiting for me in Amman mm-hmm. to drive me to Baghdad through Tarabil. So I get into the taxi, get my chemical suit and get everything, get into the taxi. Now we're going to, uh, to uh, Baghdad. And halfway through, I mean, we were miles away from Baghdad. And the first B-52 drops its bomb. I mean, it must have been hundreds of kilometers away. But the sound of it was so frightening that the taxi man said, you know what? It's not worth the money. <laughs> you either get off here or you're coming back with me to Amman. And of course, I start fighting. I have to be in Baghdad. No, no, no. He says, I'm not going. Get out. I'm in the middle of the desert. What do you mean, get out? <laughs> so anyway, so we go back to Amman. And that's the dividing moment. Mm-hmm. All this anecdote is to get to mm-hmm. this dividing moment. Because in a way, if you picture all this doom, all this... And this is another Arab country that is being bombed out of the universe. Mm-hmm. By so, another one. By the Americans in coalition with mm-hmm. all the other Arab brothers, mm-hmm. so to mm-hmm. speak. Mm-hmm. So I get to Amman, we're staying at the Intercontinental, and there's a bar up top. And all the journalists people have been hanging out with for the past 10 years. So I go up to the bar, you know, 
see the buddies and get a drink or whatever. And I remember there was a, a piano and the correspondent of the Daily Telegraph, a guy called Konkochlin, was on the piano. You know, we're all jamming. This, the war is starting and he's, we're jamming. And I remember people starting to sing, Saddam, we're gonna kick your ass. And like saying things like, Baghdad, uh, the map's gonna be without Baghdad. And suddenly, here I was with this group of foreign correspondents. I was probably one of a handful of Arabs, and I'm covering this for an American paper. Mm -hmm. And you're suddenly standing there and thinking, I mean, like, like what on every level? What does it mean to be a journalist? What am I doing? Who am I covering this war for? What am I part of? Where do I stand? Am I for Saddam or am I against Saddam? Does bombing I Iraq, accepting to bomb Iraq mean that I'm anti-Saddam? It was like all these confused concepts. Mm -hmm. Especially when you look at it, in a, like when you're bombing a place, you're not just bombing a place out of like the it won't be in the map anymore. You are killing civilians, basically, at the end like, of the day. I mean, remember, they were talking about a surgical war. We, we weren't even thinking civilians at the time because there was all this technology and giving us images of patriots going around corners and scuds doing this and that. Mm -hmm. um, so it was very, it was this very weird moment where suddenly I felt, so alone in such a rowdy crowd. And I think that is the moment where I felt, who on earth am I and what is it I'm doing? And what do I believe? What do I not believe? And the minute the war ended, I stopped everything, went back to Paris. I didn't even know where I lived because I was in Paris technically as a transition. Mm -hmm. I went to that studio in Paris. I locked myself up. And I had to figure out who on earth am I? Mm -hmm. Now, 1992, Sudan. One of the issues of the Gulf War, while we were covering it, was when this Osama bin Laden goes and tells the king, don't ally with the Americans. I am going to get you troops. Mm -hmm. So that's when the world starts thinking of Osama bin Laden. Mm -hmm. However... Egypt, I'm covering, I'm based in Cairo in the 80s, mm -hmm. covering the war in Lebanon, covering the Middle East, mm -hmm. people going to Afghanistan, covering, I mean, I've been to Peshawar, I covered the war, it was part of the Gulf War, the Iran-Iraq War, was all, all these things we separate in our heads, but all these things at the time very, connected. Very much linked, yeah. huh? So we all knew about Osama bin Laden, who was you know, connecting the, uh, he was training and helping and was part of uh, the, the main stay of the people helping Mas'ud. Mm -hmm. And if you remember Mas'ud, the Lion of Panjshir was a very sexy character. Mm -hmm. He was not a negative character. These were the guys helping, you know, combat the Soviets. Mm -hmm. So all these things. So I remember the first treatment, the first proposal for a documentary. I write a proposal called um, Allah's Holy Warriors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's about Osama bin Laden 
coming together with the son of the Sultan of Abyan, who is called Tar el Abyan, mm-hmm. Abyan in, in Yemen. Mm-hmm. So the Yemenis and the Najdis coming together under a black flag mm-hmm. to liberate the peninsula. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make that film. That's in like 91, 92. And I go to Arte at the time. Arte was new mm-hmm. at the time. And it was Thierry Garel. And I give him the proposal and he looks at me. And he says, why do you want to make a whole film about two guys? <laughs> and who are they? And why should we care about them? Uh, and I kept trying to explain. It's not about the guys. It's what the guys represent because mm-hmm. the Mujahideen and the this and na 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 Anyway, it was too complicated and they basically didn't want the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is also why I've been trying to talk about that Osama Bin Laden aspect. I don't because want to, okay, I don't want to get into the fetishism yeah. of Osama Bin Laden. Yeah, but 19- I want to put you in the mm-hmm. context mm-hmm. of who was Osama Bin Laden mm-hmm. and what made us think of Osama bin Laden the way we think of him today. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because mm-hmm. I'm not going to enter into the space of, oh my God, I met Osama bin Laden. Mm-hmm. Osama bin Laden was just another guy. Mm-hmm. They had an office mm-hmm. in front of Finsbury Park mm-hmm. and you could knock on the door and walk in. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got the okay to go film mm-hmm. In Sudan, because they were building an airport in Sudan at the time. Mm -hmm. There was nothing unusual about all of this. Mm -hmm. It's all in hindsight. Yeah. Okay. The the big problem was that as a single woman, how do I get into this Islamic groupings Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and get an okay to film with others? Out of Muharram, Muharram meaning mm-hmm. a husband, a brother, or something. Mm-hmm. So that was the negotiation. Mm-hmm. But Osama bin Laden was interesting because he was recognized as one of the main heads. Uh, Ayman al Zawahri mm-hmm. was an Egyptian mm-hmm. whom we know. Um, so none of this was. Unusual. Yeah. It's what the mass media make out of them. Exactly. That's what it. on earth made this single guy mm-hmm. the in like the entire world stops and, the, and we all felt like the minute he's captured or the minute he dies, all our problems are over. Mm-hmm. What happened to that? So do we enter into that narrative? Yeah, how, how do you how do you think that narrative was 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 created? The narrative of because that's the reason why I'm talking about him because there is you going to film and, and you know this this part of you filming his camp in 1992 sits very much at everything that someone anyone finds on you online. It's is there. that serious? Yeah, it's on it's on Wikipedia. It's, Are you uh, serious? Yeah, it's as another any, anything you read online, it sits there. It sits there as I have as, to as, as part of your biography. Yeah. So, and 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 I, and I want to ask you: Is it like? Because now, in hindsight, we know who. I really Osama have to go back and read that Wikipedia page of mine. I've never yeah. read it. So who gets to do, who gets to write that? People get to do. <laughs> Wikipedia is people contributing. Really, you don't get to write your own Wikipedia page. Can I take something out of it? You can contest <laughs> it, but if it is uh, something that I mean, it, it, it the way it works is that um, people take information that is already out there mm. and put it together. So you you can't. I think that to an extent you can say, no, I don't want it. 
But it's not that I don't want it. I just don't like the way it it sort of without any context. Yeah, it. yeah it's, it just it's, sits it's there. like it. It's almost as though it's a feather in your hat when it's absolutely no feather at all. Yeah, and that's why I want to talk about it in hindsight. Who was? How was it like? But again, you. No, I don't want to. No, I don't want. I don't want. I do not. It was just like going to Lebanon and spending time with uh, uh, in Mukhtara with mm-hmm. Walid Jumblat. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the time. He was the head of a militia mm-hmm. and we had to go see him because if we're going to cover that space, mm-hmm. that's who we needed to see. And mm-hmm. as a journalist, that's how you go to see. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing weird or exceptional about it. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I mean, I interviewed Yasser Arafat 32 times. Mm-hmm. It's not because it's me. Or it's not because it's because that's what I needed to do. I really want to exit the fetishisms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was just part of my job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everything we've been discussing now sort of like gives me uh, almost a, a clear picture of how when you started making films. Yes. The first film of yours that I experienced was Cuba, an African Odyssey. Mm-hmm. I saw it live, premiered in, uh, in, in, in Paris, 2007. I remember sitting there up there because I think it was Pathé. Or something, yes. I can't remember anymore. Yeah, is it party? It's almost a riot outside the cinema. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember that every bit of the film was a total education for me. That relationship between Cuba and Africa. It was like an opening for a young African who at that time was also studying in Paris. And there's just this history happening outside the walls of my school, the Fine Art School of Paris. What was very striking is like the, you know, the use of archive, the access to all the personalities you know that you interviewed and the things they were saying and how you were able to get them to say those things, and also the treatment of the material. So I know you've talked about when you were in university and how you were very much affiliated with um, with South Africa. So all of that is that sort of like where it was going. The first Gulf War, the nineteen ninety Gulf War was a huge earthquake for me mm-hmm. to try and figure out who I am. And and that moment where everybody keeps asking you, are you an Arab or are you an African? Are you an Arab or are you an African? And you keep needing to find an answer. Am I this or am I that? Mm-hmm. Until one moment you say, I'm actually both. Mm-hmm. Now, wh- who's going to stop me from being both? Mm-hmm. I am this and I'm that. Mm-hmm. So that was that period. Then comes 9-11. 9-11 reopens this question all over again. Mm-hmm. Once again, are you a Muslim? Are you an Arab? Now, if you are, you're one of these people who've become terrorists. Mm-hmm. So suddenly you have to not want to be an Arab. But this demonization of my culture of where I come from started making me become more Arab so here I was spending all that time becoming more African Mm -hmm. (laughs) or African and Arab but African principally Mm -hmm. then I had to start facing becoming an Arab and a Muslim all over again Mm -hmm. out of I don't accept that I don't accept this demonization of who I am. Mm-hmm. So 9-11 was a very critical moment. Mm-hmm. And of course, the minute it happened, 
because of my background, because of what I had covered, suddenly I was getting all these phone calls. Everyone and his mother wanted me to make a film or to write an article or to do a news story about 9-11. But everybody wanted to know about who Bin Laden was, wanted to know the how, the who, and the what. Mm -hmm. But nobody asked for me what was the absolutely crucial question was why? Mm -hmm. Why? And the more people were not interested in the why, the more I became obsessed with it. Mm -hmm. Because this fascination, the sudden fascination with Bin Laden, the sudden fascination with all this Islam, but it's been under your nose for all that time. Mm -hmm. I did not think that was interesting. Mm -hmm. I needed to understand why 15 young, handsome, rich educated, living in America, guys, why would they get on a plane, destroy themselves and destroy these symbols of what is the principal alliance of this their country? I, I just needed to do that. So I did this film called The House of Saud, which every obstacle in the world, I'm going to skip that, But somehow I managed to do that film. That film was nominated for an Emmy Award. Arte got the highest audience score ever at the time. And suddenly I became somebody they're interested in in Arte. Mm -hmm. So I got this phone call from a top person in Arte saying to come in. So I go to see them and they say, carte blanche. Whichever film you want to do next, we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, like this just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. He, so I had to sit and think, what is the film I want to do? Was House of Saul your first film? No. I'd done many films with Kappa, but mm-hmm. films that are a different narrative, a different kind and a different form. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. for me, the turning point of a kind of decision to reconstruct history, to mm-hmm. look into the political history of the continent, starts with uh, L'Afrique au Morceau, mm-hmm. the tragedy of the Great Lakes, mm-hmm. which is about the rise and fall of the AFDL, mm-hmm. which was the alliance of Rwanda, Uganda, Congo, all these countries mm-hmm. that came together to get rid of Mobutu, which is the last vestige of colonialism. Mm-hmm. It's about these two years where the history of Africa could have changed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then it didn't. Yeah. And so once this film was done and it sort of was uh, so celebrated, if you want, mm-hmm. they give me a carte blanche, do mm-hmm. whichever film you want. Mm-hmm. So I sit there and think for a few months and do some research and I decide I want to do a film about African liberation movements. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a treatment and my film was called Requiem for Revolution. Mm -hmm. And the film was about this moment of the vision for a better future, this moment of independence when all these founding fathers of African liberation movement came against this mammoth called colonialism and had a vision for the post-colonial reality of our world. Mm -hmm. 
And what the hell happened to that? Mm -hmm. So that's the film I wanted to make. Mm -hmm. So I write Requiem for a Revolution and I sort of like spend months doing research and the rest of it. And I go to Arte to say, voila, there's the carte blanche, there's the film I want to make. And the guy looks at me and his face drops and he says, are you kidding me? African revolutions? Who cares? And I was like, what do you mean who cares? Like, I care. I mean, a lot of people care. Mm -hmm. He says, but your film stops in the 90s. Like, and you want to use archive. You have to remember it was completely unsexy at the time mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to use archive. Right. I've been using archive when people would look at me as though I was some kind of an alien, <laughs> you know. And he looks at me and he says, no, 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 no. That's not going to fly. Go find yourself another story. And I'm like, no, that's the story I want to do. So I then spend the next two years trying to sell that film for which technically I have a carte blanche to do another film, but that's the film I made. And I had to come to a very important realization that being who I am, mm -hmm. being the other, okay, mm -hmm. people don't hear what you have to say. They only listen to you. Mm -hmm. But for them to start hearing you, there are certain buttons that you need to press mm -hmm. for them to wake up and stop listening, but start hearing. Mm -hmm. And that's all about packaging. Mm -hmm. And so at some point I decided, okay, I'm going to do this film of mine about the African revolutions. Mm -hmm. Now, how am I going to package it in a way where these people are going to start hearing me? Mm-hmm. Once again, I plunge back into research, mm -hmm. and that's where I find the Cuban connection. Mm -hmm. This film was not meant to be the Cuban connection. Mm -hmm. So I basically, in my research, I find out that Cuba had participated and supported 17 different African revolutions. Mm -hmm. So I basically isolated the ones I'm interested in, mm -hmm. did the research, and if you look at that film... What it actually does is that it tells the story of three African liberation, or four actually, African liberation movements, which I stitch together in Cuban support. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And suddenly I go back to the same guys and the same men, and they think it's a fantastic idea just because the word Cuba and triggers. Why, why is that now? Because it triggers their imaginary because it's not about what we say and it's not about what they want to know about. It's about consolidating their own imaginaries. Mm -hmm. And that's where we, or at least I'm talking about myself, I don't want to call it a mission because it sounds very sort of like technical, mm -hmm. but it is incumbent upon me mm -hmm. to isolate my narrative, mm -hmm. figure it out, mm -hmm even if I have to package it mm -hmm. in a way that reaches the mainstream. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's clear. I guess what I want to say is that what I need to look into is African revolutions. Mm -hmm. What I need to become part of the mainstream discourse, mm -hmm. the mainstream understanding mm -hmm. is African revolutions. Yeah. To get it there into the center on primetime TV mm -hmm. if I need to package it 
in mm-hmm. Cuban support, mm-hmm. that's fine. Mm-hmm. Because Cuban support is a reality, mm-hmm. is part of the story. Mm-hmm. But what I care about is the African revolutions. Mm-hmm. If that's the way to do it, that's what I do. Did you think that it came off that way eventually, that you know, going through Cuba as a route to get into what you want? Do you think that it didn't sort of like shift? Didn't, Maybe it, it did. Maybe it did, but nothing of this Cuban support was unreal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it wo- became another film, a different film. No, I'll tell you actually another anecdote about how the film shifted. Because everything, all the research I did, anything that had to do with African revolutions, the written material, even the oral anything existent in in accessible and note-taking <laughs> format never talked about African revolutions as, as such. Mm-hmm. It's as though Africa was the playground mm-hmm. for proxy wars. Mm-hmm. So everything that happened in Africa from the mid-40s until the mid-70s was about the Cold War. Mm-hmm. So you had these two big superpowers that used this continent as their playground and everything else that happened was part of how they were using us. Mm -hmm. Everything you read was about proxy wars. Everything written was about proxy wars. And part of the way I work is that when I start doing something, um, I do chronologies and I ask for um, freedom of information acts in several countries to declassify mm-hmm. um, documents that are more than 30 years old. Mm-hmm. And one of the documents that was declassified, I'm halfway, I mean, like I'm two and a half years into making that film in research. In the, and there was this one document which was a wiretap, a translation of a wiretap of a conversation between Castro and Khrushchev in 1964. And they were slagging each other like there's no tomorrow. I mean, these two were obviously not friends. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't understand how can they not be friends, yet at the same time, Che is Mm -hmm. in Cuba from everything I've read as a proxy to the Soviets. Mm -hmm. I mean, like something just, wasn't right. Mm -hmm. So I needed to figure out, but how come there's the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Soviets take out the missiles so as not to confront the Americans, Mm -hmm. yet they go to the Congo, which has uranium, Mm -hmm. and they want to confront them there. I mean, it was very confusing. There was Mm -hmm. something that I just did not understand. Mm -hmm. So I start trying to ask this one simple question. Why were the Soviets supporting Cuban intervention in the Congo yet they didn't want to confront the Americans. Mm -hmm. And people would look at me with this dumb face Mm -hmm. saying, I don't know. So I end up going to Moscow and I go to this one guy who I had interviewed several times before uh, who worked with the KGB Africa Bureau, uh, Vladimir Shubin. And I asked Shubin, whom I knew quite well, and he, he says, I don't know. I said, you know what? I'm not going to, you were the Africa Bureau. I don't care. I need to find out, find out. So I stay there and he calls me up one day and he comes out and he says, not only do I not know, as far as we all know, we did not know that the Cubans were in the Congo. I was like, oh, what do you mean you did not know? <laughs> <laughs> he says, we did not know. 
we found out that the Cubans were in the Congo in 1996 when Kabila came. So all that sounded like really weird. So I decided to go to the Congo and all I knew about Che's mission in the Congo was that he had 123 soldiers and all of them were black. And they their names, all I had was code names. Mm -hmm. The code names were in Swahili, one, two, three, four, five. So mm -hmm. where do you begin? Mm -hmm. So I basically decided to begin in the black neighborhoods in Havana, one near Havana, one of them was called the Royal Naranja. So I went to doors and knocked on people's doors saying, do you know any soldiers who went with the Che? Little by little, I finally found someone and I asked the question and eventually he looks at me, he says, I don't understand your question because we were in disguise mm -hmm. so that the Russians don't know that we're in the Congo. Mm -hmm. So how could we be working with the Russians. <laughs> so suddenly you have a reality. That's what I'm getting at. Mm -hmm. Suddenly you have a narrative mm -hmm. that does not exist in a single book, mm -hmm. that does not exist in a single argument, mm -hmm. wow. not an article. Wow. And it's an alternative narrative. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm going such in depth into the story, because from that day on, Every narrative I read in books that becomes a consistent narrative, somehow I don't trust it. Yeah. Somehow I want to know, well, what was the other side of that story? Mm -hmm. And because our stories are never part of the narrative, mm -hmm. we need to go out there and find out the, the, what happened from our perspective. I remember vividly when this man was talking about how they were, you know, going to poison was it uh, Lumumba? Lumumba with yeah. the toothpaste. Larry Devlin. Saying, how did he even get him to say things like that? <laughs> okay, this guy I had interviewed for the Congo film, my first Congo film. Mm -hmm. huh? But he didn't make it into the cut. Mm -hmm. So I had interviewed him before and I knew about him. But he. So when I started looking at the role of the Americans in the Congo, I knew I had to spend time meeting this guy, knowing his stories. The real trick, the really important thing to understand, and I think that's one of the, the two things. One, you can't forget that I'm a female. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. An Arab, and African female sitting in front of these really important people who are presidents, who are prime ministers, who are men of power. So you walk into that interview and by definition... They underestimate you. Mm -hmm. By definition, they think they can manipulate you and do it even if they don't think of it. So I think with time, I learned that my biggest weapon is to go into any interview knowing more than that person can remember about himself. Because at every twist and turn, he thinks he's going to manipulate me, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But I'm following the trajectory. I know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And they just don't expect you to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that end resulted in two things. One, big, powerful men do not intimidate me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They just don't. Yeah. Their power, as far as I'm concerned, 
is nothing. Yeah, because it's very much dependent on the information and sort of like the hoarding of information and it's the, dependent and on and the manipulation and networks. Yeah, and once you've understood that, you think, what is the worst they can do? Mm-hmm. They're gonna kill me. Well, I'm gonna die anyway one day. Mm-hmm. So big men do not intimidate me. Mm-hmm. Now, very sincere honest people who do not try to manipulate completely intimidate me because I don't want to put my foot in the wrong place with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the big men, like, okay, you think you can do this? Mm -hmm. In a way, it's almost a challenge. I don't know if it's a challenge or not. They just don't. But again, this is something you've been facing all through your life, like, you know, that rebelling, that challenging, that... You know, say, bring it on. Yeah, even but it's, it's even it's even much more banal than this. Mm-hmm. It's like I remember interviewing Museveni for the, for for the tragedy of the Great Lakes, mm-hmm. and he kept falling asleep. Mm-hmm. In while while I was, I knew he'd do that because I'd looked at all the interviews before, mm-hmm. and he always sort of dozes off. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself before I interviewed him, the minute he dozes off, I'm out. Because mm-hmm. I know I'm not going to use him in my film dozing off. Mm-hmm. So there's no point staying if mm-hmm. he does. <laughs> so we start the interview and he sort of keeps sliding bit by bit from his chair. And and at some point he started dozing off. And I was like, okay, cut. And I stopped the cameraman. I say, we'll cut. And he sort of looks up and he says, what? I said, Mr. President... You're falling asleep, so I'm wasting your time and you're wasting mine. Thank you very much. Goodbye. (laughs) And he literally wakes up and he says, like, what, what, what? Like, who the hell do you think you are? Mm -hmm. But said, but Mr. President, you are falling asleep, so it's not interesting for you. And I'm not going to use the footage with you falling asleep. Mm -hmm. So what's the point? Let me just go. (laughs) And he was like literally dumbfounded Mm -hmm. that I could say that directly to him. Mm -hmm. He said, sit down. Whose daughter are you? (laughs) (laughs) So to get back to Larry Devlin and to get back to why people, Mm -hmm. I mean, what I think why people tell me Mm -hmm. what they tell me, they're three different things. Every human alive wants to tell his bit of the story. Yeah. Every human alive, it doesn't matter how high or how low, wants to be part of history mm-hmm. and wants to tell his part of history from his own perspective. Yeah. So I'm just a platform for that. Yeah. That's number one. Number two, there's this very specific moment when people, when you interview people and they forget you're there, mm-hmm. what they're doing is they are reminiscing. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm interested in. <laughs> it's very interesting. It's very powerful because, wow. Yeah. They forget you're there. And there's something about the body language where they sit back and their eyes sort of like go up in the air and they're recounting their own story to themselves. Mm-hmm. And they are reliving it. So it doesn't really have anything to do with me. So this Larry Devlin was old, was dying. Mm-hmm. Nobody remembered who he was. And he knows that he played a, a fundamental role in the shifting of history of an entire continent. Wow. And he needed to tell that story. Now, what freaked me out 
is so many years later, he still did not understand the importance and how dramatic that was. The way he tells the story, he's laughing. It's an anecdote. Mm -hmm. And that's why I kept the anecdote the way he said it. Mm -hmm. Because his smirking and his laughter about that anecdote says as much about them trying to kill Lumumba mm -hmm. as it says about how they still think of us today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I kept coming back to him because... He said it in a very, very easy, easy way. Like, I can just say these things as if they, you know. You see, that's the other thing. I said there are several things about interviews that are really important. Walking into an interview, you have to be prepared for it to be a two-way street. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever done a proper interview for less than four hours. Mm -hmm. Because the first hour I usually throw away. I don't even listen to it. Mm -hmm. Because the first hour is about posturing. Mm -hmm. It's about me placing myself, them mm -hmm. placing themselves. Mm -hmm. It's the game. Mm -hmm. And then there's a second phase where I think if I go do an interview, they have as much right to ask me questions as I... I'm not there to go steal people's memories. Mm -hmm. It has to be... An interaction yeah. they, they have to feel they need to know mm -hmm. they need to question me as much as I question them so mm -hmm. most of my interviews become real conversations and when you get to that point after the real conversation when they feel that they have accessed your soul mm -hmm. they start opening a door towards their own yeah yeah I'm I'm really interested in history, not in individuals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The individuals make history, whether we like it or not. Yeah. But each one of them does this drop. Mm -hmm. It's like, I always feel like I'm running around the world trying to find these little bits of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And this puzzle is so huge that I never really know where to put the bit. Mm -hmm. And my fascination was with archive. Mm -hmm. Because the thing with archive is that we... We're transmitted archive without a context. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it always comes with the predominant narrative. Mm -hmm. And most of the archive that is worth keeping or that is transmitted to us comes from the perspective of the state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's a representation there. Yeah. That th So archive is such a complex thing yeah. to work with, to, to disentangle. Mm -hmm. These dates, these moments, these individuals, their presences, the angle of the camera, fortunately or unfortunately for us as Africans, mm -hmm. because we do not have a written text. Mm -hmm. we, we, our documentation system has been exploded. Yeah. So these dates, these people, these moments, these angles are what we have to put together our narrative. Yeah. And we Got to get out there and do the job. Yeah. And, and, and it's like we, you know, you have to really do the, do the legwork. There's know? no other way. Yeah, there's, there's, there's really no and other then, way. And then the legwork is again three phases because your first phase, like for me, my first phase of archive was finding it, like digging out archive. Every time I found an image that I've never seen before, it was like pop some champagne. It was like a huge moment in life. Mm -hmm. So it was about collecting. Mm-hmm. Then after collecting, you start piecing together. So yes, we have the picture, 
that ended up in the newspaper. Mm -hmm. Now, I would go out and collect all the picture, mm -hmm. all the pictures of the contact sheet mm -hmm. before that picture because the body language and what was happening in the pictures before mm -hmm. tells you a story mm -hmm. about that. Mm -hmm. And then third phase is about the representation. What are we actually saying with this archive? Mm -hmm. Why is it we filmed it? Why did we stop filming it? Mm -hmm. And what decision was taken to film and not film? Mm -hmm. So these different phases of grappling with archive, mm -hmm. I find fascinating. Yeah. What I really needed to understand, what I still need to understand, I think that's part of the dynamo that makes me go on, is how does the dream get lost? Mm -hmm. How can people be willing to give up their lives, to give up everything for this dream of independence? Mm -hmm. And the minute they attain it, mm -hmm. the dream is lost. I, I just couldn't understand you that. You think that's what happened with the case of Mandela? I think that happened with every single one of the liberation movement. It's that confrontation of the dream with the reality of power. Mm -hmm. But I think that the biggest mistake of the format of independence was the liberation movements and the founding fathers. Their skill was not to govern. Mm -hmm. Their skill was to inspire. Mm -hmm. But then they, we let them govern. Mm -hmm. Here Mandela comes out of prison, inspiring a whole world. Mm -hmm. And then one of the first things he does is to accept an economic system that he knows very well is going to oppress the poor yet again? Mm -hmm. How is that even possible? Mm -hmm. So I guess all my films somehow are trying to figure out what, what happens with yeah. power. Yeah. <laughs> what does power do to you guys? Yeah, yeah. because we, we, it's, I still it's like, don't have the answer, by the mm -hmm. way, and I never will, I, pre I presume. It seems like your life has been about being like in the thick of things, you know, like the, the Gulf War, the 9-11, all of this. You've made films around it, but now... It seems like everything is all quiet. In the recent years, you've been more like traveling in the continent and everywhere else, you know, going to film festivals, being a member of a jury for other things and really participating and even getting your hands into the art world right now. How does all of this feel? Where are you? And your work has always been very much connected to how you see the world um, form itself. Where are you now in, in terms of how you see the world? You know, what you want to do? Why are you asking me yeah. all these really hard questions, Emeka? <laughs> I've never really thought of being in the thick of things. I just sort of end up where the next thing takes me, the next thing that makes sense. So I didn't really think of stopping becoming a photographer. I just got to the point where... I couldn't write mm -hmm. and do photos with the same efficiency at the same time. Mm -hmm. I, I keep moving on from format to format, mm -hmm. but somehow the narrative and the, 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 the quest never changes. If you actually look at what I was doing mm -hmm. and what I'm chasing mm -hmm. intellectually, my central question is very large and sort of generate so many obsessions that lend themselves to so many formats. Mm -hmm. The closest I've gotten to define what my central question is, 
what happened to this beautiful vision that was going to give us all dignity? What happened to it? Yeah. And I really want to know what happened to it mm-hmm. because we were there. Mm-hmm. People believed in it. We, we were all wrapped around it and the vision was there. And I want to know what happened. I want to know why we were not given the chance to live through our dignity. Why mm-hmm. do we have to chase it every morning? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when I say chase it every morning, I'm also talking on a very individual mm-hmm. and a collective level. Mm-hmm. Every morning as an African, as an Arab, as the other I have to chase my dignity mm-hmm. from the moment I wake up until the moment I sleep. And I don't think that's what all these liberation movements fought for. They fought for our dignity mm-hmm. and somehow we thwarted it and I don't understand how and why. So all these, so to get back to your question, all these different formats mm-hmm. are complementary. I don't ever see myself like maybe these past eight, nine years where I've been more involved in the art world, I don't see these spaces as worlds. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe I don't really care where and how as long as it makes sense to me. So I don't really understand how the art world functions. I don't really know who's who and who's big and who's small and who's glamorous and who isn't. <laughs> Really, mm-hmm. and I really don't particularly care mm-hmm. the people who talk to me and make sense in terms of this conversation, advancing this conversation. Mm-hmm. I really want to work with them. Mm-hmm. One of the exhibitions I did at Hakavi with Anselm Frank mm-hmm. had this radio that I've been carrying around with me since I don't know, since I was. 19 or 20 Mm -hmm. it was one of the radios that were manufactured for the bandung 1955 and the central dial is written in arabic and the central dial says bandung (laughs) it's always been one of my fetish objects and i bought it Mm -hmm. when i was 19 i had no idea why i was buying it but this radio has traveled with me everywhere i've gone yeah. Because the central dial said Bandung. Yes, to give some context, the Bandung 55 was at a conference on a, yes, the, it the, was the, the, the post-colonial. The, it was yeah. the main, the beginning of the whole solidarity, mm-hmm. the pre- precursor to the non-aligned movement. It's where the global south tried to envisage an alternative mm-hmm. of their own. Mm-hmm. It was the moment where Nehru, Nasser, Sukarno, uh, um, uh, Nkrumah, all these people sat together. These people met. These people went out to lunch. Mm-hmm. They, you know, um, they knew each other's kids. It mm-hmm. was a world that they were configuring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So just to get back to the art world, I think it's important to, to, to address the question the way you you this move from the thick of things to what you consider the periphery of things. I, I know mm, you didn't say it like that. No, but, no, uh, no, no, but I, I, I have to hold you accountable for that. I have to hold you accountable for that because I'm not going to let you off that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I think that I'm I'm, I'm going more for uh, let, let sort me, of like a different, a, diff, a, a, a different format or... It's format and it's what is it I do, okay? I, I think... And we didn't that to I, ask you, we didn't that to ask you to, get, to 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 ask if maybe that you 
you've had some sort of like disillusion about you know some of the things that you believed in that's why that's why that's why i said periphery <laughs> no periphery. periphery and disillusionment is looking, <laughs> looking no 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 looking for <laughs> other formats looking for other ways of saying what you want to say i think my disillusionment my categoric unconditional disillusionment was with journalism mm-hmm I honestly believed that journalism was a first draft of history mm. and that 1990 Gulf War and what followed made me almost ashamed to call myself a journalist although I was very proud to be a journalist mm-hmm. I really believed that I put my life on the line to transmit what others couldn't see so I believed in it profoundly mm-hmm. and 1990 sitting in these press conferences of Norman Schwarzkopf and being obliged to go and sit and write a story about an Arab country being destroyed after a press conference by Norman Schwarzkopf that sort of killed my inside bit by bit and that's how I go into documentary I no longer wanted to spend just three hours trying to find an answer to a question i was willing to put in the legwork to spend three years to find an answer to one question mm-hmm. and so this move from journalism which is quick soundbite that's what you need to understand that is what important to taking five six years of my life having i my first film i still have something like 28 boxes of documents for wow. something that ends up being a one hour film <laughs> so you do a phd mm-hmm. every time you do a film mm-hmm. <laughs> i like that <laughs> I mean, it's true but wow. i needed to take that time i no longer wanted that format of superficialness although i rejected it the tools it taught me I used these tools in the going deeper mm-hmm. in the questioning in the formulating questions and then you get to the stage where you suddenly realize that I'm being formatted mm-hmm. no matter what I do mm-hmm. for this thing to see the life to be transmitted it's going to have to be 52 minutes and in an outlet that's going to format certain things i know how to do it and i know how to get away for with it being my voice mm-hmm. but that format is shackling me mm-hmm. it's it's containing me mm-hmm. uh, the first cut of my nasser film was seven and a half hours it needed to go down to 58 minutes mm-hmm. so of course you do two cuts one that's 90 minutes and one that's 58 well, what about the seven and a half hours mm-hmm what happens to that mm-hmm. and i have like films and films and interviews and interviews so so this whole mass of things begs the question of the format and where is your freedom mm-hmm. so every time i feel the constraint on my freedom in a format i move on to the next one and that's how come i come to the art world mm-hmm. i come to it because i'm going to use a bit of this and until somebody tries to format me I'll move on mm-hmm. to to God knows what. Mm-hmm. The other really important element that word transmission. I think one of my biggest problems was that I never had a kind of 
master mentor mm -hmm. that transmitted. I had bits and bobs here and there, so I have many mentors, mm -hmm. but I never had someone who allowed me or navigated me into opening doors and questioning. Mm -hmm. And that's where I start engaging with teaching mm -hmm. because what I'm interested in is allowing or spending time, even if it's never paid, with young African filmmakers mm -hmm. or artists or whatever it is they want to do, questioning them and engaging with them in a way where they find their own voice, where the sentences they tell me need to be rethought. You just ask the question, but hold on a minute. Are you saying that because that's what you read in that book? Mm -hmm. What do you think? And you'd be surprised how very often we're so formatted into mm -hmm. you read this amazing book and it fires you up and you then translate it into your own thought, but you never take the time to say, what is my voice? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. part of this recent format, which is partly art, partly teaching, partly continuing research, is about voice. Mm -hmm. How do we even start finding this voice? How mm -hmm. do I find my own voice? So you think you've not found your voice? No. No, I, I mean... I'm, After I'm, all these years? No, I haven't found my voice. I'm, I'm finding bits and bobs of it. Yeah. And if I find my voice, I'll stop searching. Okay, that's the name of the podcast. <laughs> that's the name of the podcast. If I find my voice, I'll stop searching. And I think that this is, you know, something that I feel about. Sometimes I just sit down and I wonder, you know, um, about your process what really moves you every day like keeps you going despite all the challenges because like you just said now to make one film is like a phd <laughs> and it, make, it makes me laugh because people who are doing phd like yeah she's done like about 10 phds <laughs> <laughs> on that note but what keeps you really going is it the outcome or the process never or is it like a mix never of the it? outcome the outcome is almost a chore can you like break it down like so that we can be able to even visualize it. How? You know, when you wake up in the morning and then you have to do this. Like, you are the kind of person when I sit with and then we, we talk and we hang out and it's like, and like you, you work hard and you play hard at the same time. Completely. And, yeah, you know? <laughs> All this I'm doing for one stupid little thing called expression, mm -hmm. called reflecting on how to express something that we have not been given the space and the parameters. We have to create it for ourselves. What the final thing that's going to come out of it, I don't always think of it. I never really know what the final object of an artwork is going to look like. But the process of getting to what it is I want is what allows me to see it. Mm -hmm. Now, making it, do I always make it? No. I have two, three films that I even started and pulled out of in the middle mm -hmm. because I don't actually want to do that because the conditions and the criteria involved in me going all the way, mm -hmm. I don't want them. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to stop doing it. Mm -hmm. I have absolutely no problem with pulling out. Mm -hmm. So in a way, the process of doing it, of looking for it, of asking the questions, having guidelines, concentration. Now going to film and then sitting in the edit is 
just what you have to do at the end. Mm-hmm. But the real deal mm-hmm. is getting there. Is the quest for it? Oh my search. God! I like. Is, the, is like, it following? It's 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 like sitting and writing questions. And so, is it like for every time you discover something, say a particular, you know, archive, a photograph, or something, then it spurs you on. Again. It's a whole world that opens. It's an entire world that opens. I want to ask, audience, who, <laughs> <laughs> who, do you make your films for, and do you think that throughout all these years that you've been able to reach? people as much as possible that you've been able to <laughs> share your films with the people that you love them to see your films and okay. is there something that you, okay yeah, have can we be done established with? that i have a right to my own contradictions <laughs> mm-hmm. can we establish yeah that? i remember i remember that you know i told you I rem- <laughs> you know i told you i remember you saying something like that in johannesburg in 2008 when i was <laughs> when we went out somewhere in melville And you said exactly the same thing. I never forget that. That was the first time um, I heard someone say, "I have a right to my own contradictions." And I am ever since, I, and it's opposite. Yes, and I have a yes. right to it. Yeah, you know, I yes, I am a contradictory person, and I just gotta deal with that. It, so the right to my contradiction means that, on the one hand, what I do, and my voice. I want the whole world to hear it, which means that I have refused in terms of documentaries and in terms of being a journalist to ever be in a space that isn't primetime mainstream. So if you look at everywhere I've worked and where there, in terms of I've worked for Reuters, which is disseminate to the whole wide world. The Sunday Times, the Washington Post, US News and World Report, you name it, it's been mainstream prime time, okay? That's on the one hand mm-hmm. because I refuse to be contained that my voice be contained in the ghetto. Mhm. Mhm. Because I don't think we belong in a ghetto. I think the ghetto has been forced on us. Mhm. And we are in a moment in time and i think we all of us have the capacity and the skills to say no you come to the ghetto and the ghetto it <laughs> comes you know, to you yeah it comes to you so my voice needs to be right there prime time mainstream that means i have to compete with the whole wide world okay it means that i'm in no slot mm-hmm. that I've never ever had African funding. Mm-hmm. I've never ever had any of these sort of fundings. Mm-hmm. However, once it's done and it's out on prime time mainstream, the festivals I go to are primarily African film festivals. Mm-hmm. I don't even enroll my films to what are the fancy big festivals unless they ask me then okay you can take them mm-hmm. but me writing out an application it'll mm-hmm. be to some african film festival somewhere mm-hmm. because that's the space i want to be in mm-hmm. so my contradiction is that i want my voice to be heard loud mm-hmm. but at the same time my voice is addressing 
the space that I feel is my people collectively, mm-hmm. which is the global south. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's addressing that, because I want them to come and join me in building that edifice. I can't build anything on my own. Each one of us is just a brick in the wall. Mm-hmm. So if you come and see this bit of the brick of the wall, maybe somebody else will mm-hmm. continue yeah. building that brick in the wall. Yeah. And my third contradiction, sorry to say that, I don't give a damn about audience. Mm-hmm. I don't do things for audience. I do things because that's what I feel I need to do right now. And I believe my audience is people who have the same questions, mm-hmm. people who have the same who are as lost as I am, mm-hmm. who are as searching and wanting to find an alternative, wanting to find a voice, mm-hmm. wanting to find a space, wanting to find a different color, mm-hmm. a different diversity, a different being. Mm-hmm. And so I think they're my audience. How do I find them? I don't know. So I don't know how to find them. So how can be? How can I even be doing anything for an audience that I don't know who it is? And I don't believe that anybody knows who the audience is. Do you think TVs know who their audience is because there's a black box in somebody's living room? Yeah, but you know, it's interesting that you talked about the mainstream. But the mainstream also comes with the mainstream narrative. Have you been able to deal with that? But that's why you have to subvert it. Is mainstream? Do you subvert mainstream? Do you, is it is it even uh, is it even possible? I mean, recently, um, two know, two days ago, yeah. um, there's this um, article by CNN. Uh, CNN oh is mainstream. Oh my god! I saw yeah. that article. Yeah, exactly. It's horrifying. Yeah, photography, and these are so-called experts, African experts. Yeah. So now, if we if we told the line that you're going now, which I find no, very very okay. interesting, which okay. I find very interesting, and saying. We cannot be boxed into a ghetto. And I understand that conversation. I understand and I really am really for it. But you go into that being conscious of what the mainstream does to your material, to your narrative. You go into that conscious of that. But I talked so, to you earlier yeah. about packaging. Yeah, yeah. It's up to you yeah, yeah. how to do it. Mm-hmm. You're being fooled into a space. Will you fool them into a space too, no? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, but it's this a two-way article, street. This article, these you know, so-called experts didn't even... So they are also... Trying to not be boxed into a ghetto no, by... No, no, hold on, hold on. Let's by, talk about this article. Excuse uh, me. Yeah. This article starts... The, 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 even, the, even the definition of the beginning of this article, there are like five major errors. Mm-hmm. First of all, they call the Bamako um, Biennale as a commercial space. Yeah. They define and they say the new thing in town is... I mean, I'm sorry. Why do you even want me to engage with stupidity? So for the benefit of those who are listening to this, the the, the article in question is... It's stupidity. The recent article published by CNN on, you know, the top photographers of Africa and they had four experts. The mere fact that we get into these, the 10 best African photographers, Mm -hmm. what the hell does that mean? Mm -hmm. You have 54 countries. How do you even compare them and who decides what is best for what mm-hmm. so the mere concept of the 10 best photographers is one of the selling tools of these devices mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. these outlets these instruments mm-hmm. subversion is not a big word it's just planting a seed mm-hmm. of telling the others by the way 
there's another narrative. Here's a bit of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think ultimately we have to recognize the power we have. Yes. And to go back to my father, our only power is the power to say, no, thank you. I will do it my way and I will live up to the consequences. Knowing that you just got to do what you need to do because ultimately the very worst that can happen is going to happen anyway. Mm-hmm. It's just how, what is it we do, do while getting there? While getting there. And no one can take this away from me. Wow. This one I have to remember all the time. Huh? Like your CNN article, mm-hmm. it's, it's a stupid attempt mm-hmm. to say, oh, Africa is sexy, but just taking it from the wrong angle. Yeah, a very, huh? very, well, you know, like it was like really... Uninformed. Un- uninformed. Completely uninformed. It's, it's Didn't like even dis- do the work. Dismissible. You know? Yeah. Dismissible. Mm-hmm. Huh? Yet what this article shows is that even CNN think that, oh my God, we have to catch up with this trend called Africa. Mm-hmm. Africa now, African art is very expensive. African this, da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Honestly, mm-hmm. all I care about is that what this is doing is opening up multiple spaces mm-hmm. that are allowing for different facets of how to address questions mm-hmm. that we've been battling for. Mm-hmm. My question is, how do we get to occupy that space and who occupies it? Mm -hmm. Because if then what happens is the triumph of CNN Mm -hmm. and its 10 chosen people, then we've lost the battle. That's it. That's it, really. You asked me, how is it that, that I continue on? I continue because it's a battlefield out there. When it stops being a battlefield out there, I'm going to put up my boots. I haven't put up my boots yet because it's a battlefield out there. Every morning I go out. Who I am, what I represent, what I want to think, what I can say, the tags you attach to me is still a battle. A lot of, a lot of what we see today, the CNN blah, 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 is that, especially the younger generation of Africans, they are tired of the so-called Africa burden. When you have conversation with them, even those people now who have been called this, you will see them not responding to this. You will see them staying away from all of these things that has been said about them because... But they'll create gonna, their own... They, they, it'll create their own... You know what so, the so thing is... So how do you address that? How yeah. do I address that? That's where the, the Africa problem born is. The tiredness of it. It's not tiredness. We can't be tired of it because it's still right there and nothing has changed. But, you know, for example, no, no, in, like, my, in, my, in, in, in a place like Nigeria, no. like Lagos... Yeah. Yeah, can I, okay. yeah, no, no, let me just drop it. Let me just drop it and leave it. In a place like Lagos, we go about, there's this whole new middle class now thing going on. You were, you were in Lagos. So the island is a place for the new middle class. Then the mainland is now people moving and going to that Nigerian, no, <laughs> going to that Nigerian dream. But it's, it's so interesting because <laughs> an interesting metaphor is that when it rains, all of that island drowns. Huh? So... <laughs> No, seriously, you will see people really using cane. So all of that is an illusion. All of that illusion of having a car, you know that the reality is that when it rains, you don't have the proper You're infrastructure. You're stranded. You're stranded. <laughs> that is the reality. And yet they will turn, turn a blind eye. You know, a lot of young people will just turn their eye that way. And they will prefer to live in that illusion. They are tired of the Africa body, even though it is okay. still their body okay, to carry. I'm, go- I'm going to, uh, sorry, I don't come to things the same way that you 
want me to. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I think the first thing is that you and me mm -hmm. sitting here mm -hmm. commenting on Africa mm -hmm. and wanting to talk about Africa mm -hmm. is the first thing we have to do. Mm -hmm. One is to be conscious and admit that you and I mm -hmm. are privileged. Mm -hmm. And through our privilege, we can step out mm -hmm. and try with some integrity mm -hmm. to look, explain and think. Mm -hmm. But we are not representatives of the people. No, no, certainly, certainly. We are not. Certainly. Okay? Now, the example you gave of the island flooding, huh? we have the means to be in that island. And remember when I told you about my mother, mm -hmm. my issue with her was that external shell. Mm -hmm. My mother would have wanted me to get married and to live on that island mm -hmm. because that's where we belong. Mm -hmm. But I have the choice, like you, Emeka, have the choice mm -hmm. to leave a house on that island and to go live there. This is our choice. 90% of our populations collectively mm -hmm. huh, do not have that choice. And I think with honesty, do not. People, Some people are stuck in their space and in their doggy dog life. So what we do as artists and these collectives you're talking about who are rejecting the burden of Africa, mm -hmm. we are the few who have that choice to say, I am making the choice to step out and think of what is it that's happening there? Mm -hmm. What is that space? What, how can I deal with that space? How can I be part of opening up doors that will allow more and more people to question, even question me? Mm -hmm. And privilege is not just about money. Privilege is not just about where you live. Privilege is also about being heard being mm -hmm. chosen. Mm -hmm. Hmm? It comes with a responsibility. Huge. Yeah. Huge. So, so when I, oftentimes when someone says privilege, yeah. I use that word when there is not enough responsibility to back it no. up. Privilege. That's, 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 I, have, I use it that way because... I'm sorry. Privilege is privilege. We have to look it in the eye. I have to recognize that, yes, I can say what I say. I can be the migrant bird because I have an education that allows me to. I have forms of talent mm -hmm. that have been regarded as worthy. Mm -hmm. All this is privilege mm -hmm. and you cannot take it for granted. When we talk about the burden of Africa, mm -hmm. we as artists today, yes, we have a burden mm -hmm. because we are privileged to have the capacity to touch people's lives. Mm -hmm. We have entrance keys to certain radio waves. Mm -hmm. Look at us here. We're talking and podcasts and people are going to hear us. Mm -hmm. We're going to influence people. Mm -hmm. This is privilege, whether we like it or not. And this comes with the responsibility. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to go back to the CNN article, which I think is really important because it says a lot about the pitfalls that we face, you and I face each and every day. You get to a space, you've worked hard, you want to be part of something, and then you're chosen to be part of it. You come to this crossroad of, do I go higher? This power, the question of power. Many people who are your friends and who are my friends 
got to this moment of being recognized and having the power to go higher and be more visible and more exposed, they take that route up to the peak. Once you're up there in the peak, again, you have two options. To work for yourself and to be full of yourself and reap the benefits for yourself or to say, thank you very much. I'm going down a step in the ladder to the plateau with my people <laughs> and let's continue just working together. Mm-hmm. So people like CNN, when they choose 10 influential Africans, what they do is they open the door to them testing themselves. And these collectives who no longer want to be part of this are going to create a structure where a new form of structure of power is going to arrive. Power is a problem. Power is a huge problem. How do you maintain a dream when you have the power to do things otherwise? Each liberation movement until today, when it got to power, it abused it. Now, us as individuals are in front of this problematic each time an important curator opens the door to a new exhibition and you know that your name is going to be splashed all over the world, that moment of power is going to be your problem. And this is actually where you have to remember privilege and how to use it. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's why I said privilege and recognizing privilege. And the moment where you realize that you you are being used. Let me tell you a very, very important moment in my life. The Saudi film, Emmy Awards and not Emmy Awards, and everybody was talking about it. And on plus, a woman making a film about Saudi Arabia, and she met all these people. It was a big thing. And suddenly I was being invited on every TV show and every this and every that. And it's part of what I wanted to talk about because that's why I made the film and the rest of it. And then one day I get this invitation to the Frankfurt Book Fair on a panel, myself and Daniel Cohn-Bendit, like Daniel Cohn-Bendit, the 1968 leader and blah, blah. It's like me. And you're suddenly thinking like, Okay, wow. Then they send me a first-class plane ticket to go to that panel. That's when I really started worrying. (laughs) (laughs) Saying, hold on a minute. These are people who do everything in their power to stop me from making my films properly, from giving me Mm problems. Suddenly you're giving me a first-class ticket. When did I become so important? And most importantly, Why have I become so important? Mm -hmm. So I go to this panel and as I'm on this panel that is broadcast by the whole world and and I suddenly realized what I have become, what I represent. Mm -hmm. I was the token Arab Muslim female Mm -hmm. who is unveiled, who can talk about Saudi Arabia. I left that panel and I never, ever, ever spoke about this film again, spoke about Saudi Arabia again, accepted to go to a film festival again. I unplugged myself out of the system because I recognized that I could be used. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be used. Mm -hmm. Everything I had to say was in that film. Mm -hmm. Now, look at the alternative. The alternative was me liking that first class ticket, Mm -hmm. me enjoying 
being uh, on the same level as Daniel Cohn-Bendit mm-hmm. and then speaking to the next person who will put me on another TV show and then I become a celebrity mm-hmm. and then I become the person they invite mm-hmm. on shows each and every time they speak about Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. I could be that person. Mm-hmm. And then you, 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 you make another film about Saudi Arabia. And then <laughs> I become the expert. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You either want to be in that position or you decide not to and that is a danger lurking at every important artist on our continent and what about someone who says in some fairness someone who says let's get there first so that we can now push from there we can now affect things from there let's get to that level where we can speak to them look them in the eye so in your experience all these years does it really work Of course it you know what it depends what you how you define that level okay because you're at that level and I'm at that level you think I'm at that level no hold on hold on now if that level is about the bling bling mm-hmm. if that level means that I need to be the jury in can mm-hmm. otherwise uh, No, I don't want to be the jury in Cannes. But I know that every single year in the past, I don't know, 20 years, I'm invited somehow to be in Cannes mm-hmm. because I want to be there and usually I want to be there in an African space. Mm-hmm. This year, for example, I'm invited in three different spaces. Mm-hmm. My accreditation is with the Africa Pavilion. Mm-hmm. Although as Doc's Box, I could be with Doc Days. Mm-hmm. I'm with the Africa Pavilion. Mm-hmm. It's about choices. Yes, you're at that level because wherever you are, you have space in newspapers. You have space in da-da-da. You can be there. But you can be Mr. Bling, who every time somebody wants to talk about an African photographer, your name is splashed all over the place. If that's where you want to be, it's a different trip. <laughs> yeah it's a different trip yeah so where you are used as the poster as a poster boy I don't want to be a poster girl nothing about me is a poster girl um, and it's really funny now that I'm talking about all this it again it comes back to all my issues with my parents mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what I'm fighting for to wrench out of my father and I get his support and what I'm fighting with as the image mm-hmm. that my mother wants to keep me in mm-hmm. because that's who I should be mm-hmm. and doesn't want to accept me as what is regarded as slightly inferior. You're not quite in the category of important people. Mm-hmm. But who gets to define who important people are? Someone said, and that's um, Olu Ogwibe. Yeah, know, he, one he, of he, my favorites. <laughs> he left a comment on um, Bonaventure's uh, a post about the CNN uh, article saying that it's important to call these people out where it is it is visible he even mentioned twitter yeah because this is where you f- you you find the you know this journalist it's important to call them out because in their time in his time that this would not have been allowed reason is that you should call out those people when you are digging a hole and digging a hole and some people are somewhere else pouring sand back into it Now, I like that analogy because 
he didn't see it as everybody should just go and dig their own hole. So what do you think of this notion of, okay, they have to be held accountable for that? Or do you think that, okay, let people do their own thing, you know, um, what matters? Sometimes I think that way too. Uh, also because for me, I think um, you rather use that energy to focus because there's this, all of this, this distraction, I think, that uh, you need to focus on what you are doing yourself as opposed to calling other people out. But what do you, how do you see it? It's a combination of both. Mm-hmm. I feel that the most important thing is to get as many people to dig many holes because the number of holes, the more they grow, they're going to connect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No matter how much anybody is trying to fill the sandpits, how many sandpits can they fill at the same time? Mm-hmm. So the more there are holes being dug. Mm-hmm. The other thing, calling people out, we need to call the entire system, northern world, the entire history of the world out. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can say starting from slavery, but even before then. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to call out and what are we not going to call out? Mm-hmm. I think if there are enough people working hard to create an alternative narrative, mm-hmm. Actually, that's another one of the quotes. Mm -hmm. Olu has quotes that are fundamental for me. Mm -hmm. There's another one about you do not change a system by trying to break it down. Mm -hmm. You create an alternative system Mm -hmm. that makes the older one obsolete Mm -hmm. by definition. But if I spend my time and waste my energy on a system that I know is out there to keep me in a space I don't want to be in, then I'm wasting my time. I need to be working on creating an alternative system Mm -hmm. that will so exist that when you look at it and say, what are these people talking about? Mm I'm making that other system obsolete. Mm-hmm. I'm making CNN obsolete by showing and doing other things yeah. that make anyone who's of any interest, who has any interest in what we're doing, say, hold on a minute, these guys are stupid. What about all these other people? Mm-hmm. Hmm? Who are they addressing? They're addressing a pool of people that are already converted by the system. So, I don't want to fight that. Mm -hmm. And then now to de escalate all of this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I remember when we were having a conversation sometime, you know, it's not here. Um, You talked about when you made your first film, you had your daughter (laughs) Ines on your back, strapped. (laughs) Can you talk about that a little bit? Like um, being a mother, doing all of that and having to like all the challenges of, that comes with that and still being who you are. I have no idea how my kids live through all of this. I think, I mean, they've come out to be amazing girls, both of them. Did I participate in this? I think so. Uh, just by being unconventional. I do remember when they were much younger uh, they'd always think I'm very weird and they'd always say, why can't you be like all the other mothers? Um, and my answer was like, because I'm not. 
<laughs> I remember once taking my daughter to school and she was like always very conscious about don't speak Arabic, don't speak English. Just she wanted to be like everybody else. And one day I took her to school and before going to in Paris, before going into school, I stood there with her and I said, okay, look at this mother. She's tall. She's thin. She's da-na-na. Look at the next one. She's extraordinary. Each one of them is different. This is the mother you have, and that's what you're going to have to accept. Of course, being a child, she had no idea what I was on about. She just <laughs> thought I was weird. And, and taking them out of school every now and then, and then uh, spending a month in Ethiopia, another month in Cuba, and a month in Ghana, um, in, in especially in places that were deemed dangerous. Uh, my point was like, well, my children are not the only kids in that space. I mm -hmm. mean, in a place like the Congo or in Ethiopia or in Cuba, there are thousands of kids. Why are my kids special? Mm -hmm. So, and at some point, we, you know, if I have to make a choice between breastfeeding and the film, I don't want the either or. I want the end. I want to be able to breastfeed and make my film. <laughs> What's so difficult about that? Just mm -hmm. take the child with you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... You know, I mean, there's there's this one image I always keep in mind when we were filming the, in, in Cuba and we're in the middle of filming and I had my two kids with me and it was late and we were still filming. So I just took two chairs, put them together, another two chairs, put them together and each one of my kids was sleeping on the chairs while we continued filming. And someone walked in and was like, whose kids are these? And I was like... Mine, said, and you're leaving them like this? I said, well, they're fast asleep. <laughs> so, so, I mean, like, what's wrong with that? So I guess the norms of mm -hmm. motherhood very quickly didn't apply to me. And the question is, did I feel guilty about it? Everything around me tried to make me feel guilty about it. Is it the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do? God knows. But all I know is that these films, I was also pregnant with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I just feel that my films are part of my family. Wow. And I hope that my kids feel that these are their siblings too, because these are parts, this is part of who they are, because they're part of who I am. It's not just the films, it's like most of the stuff I do. I must say a very gratifying moment, but maybe I'm patting myself on the shoulder here. Um, when my younger daughter was writing her personal statement to get into university, and she, she sent it to me to have, you know, to just have a look at it before she sent it out. And I suddenly realized every moment in her personal statement was somehow connected to a difficult decision I had to make. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. so she started her personal statement with this moment about street art in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And I had thrown them into that pool of street art in South Africa because it was... Christmas holiday and I didn't know what to do with them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I had someone go come give them a uh, a workshop in mm -hmm. street art and <laughs> protest art 
you know, to do four days of something. Mm -hmm. So, and we went and we bought the cans and, you know, we watched all the Banksy films that I was just, uh, and it had marked her. I didn't know it had marked her mm -hmm. as far as I was concerned. Mm -hmm. Phew. There we go. There's <laughs> one Christmas where I did something that is fun mm -hmm. because I didn't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. And so, Obviously, you have impact and impact on your children. And it's much more difficult being the mother than being the father mm -hmm. because expectation from you is, is huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, that the social criteria of the role of the mother is one of the biggest shackles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you accept to live with what they think, mm -hmm. it's just what they think. I mean, for good, for better or for worse, that's what it is. Yeah. But yeah. I think that there comes a time where they recognize that you have a different way of doing things. Mm -hmm. And today, Ines is also in the art space right now and doing, doing so well. Yeah. That, I mean, I mean, I mean does, does that feel like, okay, well, you know, that solved or rather. I mean, that took care of um, you I mean, know, I think, some of the concerns I that I had. I think both of them, each one, they're so different. Mm -hmm. I mean, Ines, Ines is a very extremely highly intelligent, very studious, very, I mean, like she's probably read more books than I have and sort of calls me out on every philosopher and like <laughs> freaks me out. Like, oh my God, now I have to answer. Am I going to say the right thing or not? And like, we go to all these exhibitions together and mm -hmm. she tests me the whole mm -hmm. time. By the way, she just did my portfolio for the first time ever she did it for me because she says like invited to this biennial mm -hmm. and they wanted a portfolio and i don't have one i mm -hmm. don't even know how to do one mm -hmm. and she did it for me mm -hmm. so uh, ines is someone who has her own space of reflection she knows exactly what she wants she knows exactly what she accepts and she doesn't accept she comes to life from a very different perspective of mine. Mm -hmm. Sounds a bit like your father. Completely. A good part of who they've become now is also you, you know, not conforming to that societal notion of, of the mother. So at the end of the day, we can say that it's all going okay. It's fantastic. I love it. I really enjoy their company. I mean, like, uh, uh, I go dancing with Miriam mm -hmm. and I go to museums with Ines. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Jihan. This is, has been very, 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 very wonderful. Thank you for accepting to be on the program. And um, yes, so we're going to end uh, um, the episode with uh, a quote from I've never Olu. Met him. I would love to meet him. Okay, from <laughs> Olu Ogwibe that uh, Jihan is going to read out right now. It's a quote about exile. Hmm? It's from Exile and the Creative Imagination that he wrote in June 2004. And it says, Exile demands contemplation because it is unavoidably real for those who experience it. More than a word, exile is also a condition. It is a place, a knowledge, a narrative. But most importantly, it is a psychic space that is obvious to those who inhabit it. Those who must engage and wrestle with it because only by doing so can they come to terms with it. Wow. This is powerful. This is powerful. 
And everything we have said today comes from the space of exile, be it physical or be it internal. Mm -hmm. Because I believe as Africans, we need to deal with the internal exile we are navigating. Thank you. <laughs> That's how Thank I Thank you. <laughs> wow, this is good. This is good. So to everyone out there, if you like what you've heard, please be proactive, share it. Thank you very much. And yeah, that's it. <laughs>